Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness as the term is used in conversations around race and racism and as it pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by historian and author of The Making of American Whiteness, The Formation of Race in 17th Century Virginia, Dr. Carmen P. Thompson. Dr. Thompson is a highly sought out expert on race and whiteness in America, whose scholarship has been quoted in historic court judgments. She wrote the introduction to the forthcoming book Protest City, Portland's Summer of Rage, a photo book that chronicles the year-long protests in Portland, Oregon after the murder of George Floyd at the hands of police in 2020. And she's held a visiting scholar appointment at the Institute for Research in African American Studies at Columbia University in New York and in the Black Studies Department at Portland State University. We are very lucky to have her with us today. Dr. Thompson, thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? Wonderful. Thank you for having me. We're delighted. I mean, I always like to start out um, by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves. Of course, beyond the accolades, where did you grow up? How did these subjects come to become such an important part of what you would dedicate your life to working on? Yeah, I I'm, uh, grew up in Portland, Oregon. I'm an African-American woman, Black woman. I go by African-American or Black. I grew up in Portland, Oregon in the United States. Um, Portland is the whitest city in the United States with a population of over 500,000 people. So there's in the whole state of about 5 million people in the state, less than 2% of the population is black or African-American. And those people, I'd say 95% of those um, African-American or black people live in Portland. And so that's the city that I grew up in. So I was keenly aware of my blackness, even though I have friends, you know, and get along with everybody, but I was keenly aware of my blackness and just growing up, I just kind of always wanted to know why it was, first of all, um, that um, African people were chosen by Europeans for enslavement and thinking of just the transatlantic slave trade, thinking of just slavery in the United States and how that operated. I just wanted to know why black people, why was it that uh, white people, and then this is my childhood self, why was it that white people just didn't like black people, that they had all these laws and policies, I'm thinking Jim Crow, fire hoses, lynchings, just discrimination, just really hating and disliking somebody simply because they're black. This as a child is something that I didn't understand. And, you know, why is it that black people were segregated, that they couldn't live in certain neighborhoods, um, that they had just all this vitriol um, against them? I couldn't understand that, even though at the time that I was thinking of all this, clearly, you know, I was get, had lived by whites, you know, people were getting along, we were getting along kind of day to day, but it really my young mind didn't quite understand it, but it really was more kind of the systematic um, government policies and, and practices and, and legislative aspect of it that um, in my mind that I was too young to understand that I was really trying to grapple with. And then um, besides just this, what, you know, general, you know, dislike and anti-Blackness um, that was happening um, at, from childhood that I kind of picked up on, um, even though I grew up in a household, um, single mom who, you know, had friends of all races too. So it was never any conflict, but I just kind of noticed from the social cues, even as early as second and third grade, that there was just this difference um, between black and white people in particular um, in, in Portland. And then I wanted to know as I've gotten older, you know, how it was um, that black people in America 
were ranked the lowest and white people were ranked the highest on the social order of things and all the other racial groups were kind of ranked in between. So it's like, where did we get this racial hierarchy from? Where did, how did this come about? And, and how does it just kind of maintain and sustain itself over centuries? And I kind of wanted to understand that. And that basically fueled um, my graduate studies at uh, the University of Illinois and at Columbia University in New York, trying to understand the black experience, but particularly just trying to understand uh, whiteness because um, clearly a lot of the problems that black and African-American people have had in the United States is a direct result of the anti-blackness that white people have directed towards them. And so I just kind of wanted to understand what was the origins of all this and where did this come from? And so that then became the basis of my research and of my studies and then ultimately of this book. Wow, wow. Um, that's fascinating. And also so much to unpick there. There's so many questions that I want to pick, uh, kind of follow up on. I guess my my first one um, listening to you is, is thinking about you as a child and, and not just you, but so many other children, sort of um, African-American children, black children who navigate the world trying to make sense of why they're experiencing second-class um, treatment, right, at every turn. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's something that um, could only be a profoundly scarring experience. But then I was also thinking about how um, the experience of that could... Um, I feel that there's a discourse around race that tends to focus a lot on hate. And, right. and I, I sometimes I wonder whether the focus on hate is a distraction from the systems that underpin um, race. And I was wondering, you know, as an adult today who's, who's studied this so much, how do you view the relationship now between kind of the conversation on race that says, you know, it's sort of a hatred of, of black people or it's a hatred of people of color. Um, and I guess the other conversation that would say, well, um, that's just a byproduct of a wider system that requires maybe a, a dehumanization of certain groups. I mean, I, yeah, what's right. what's your analysis on that uh, of that little girl's interpretation of the world? Now? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it it you know, whiteness and and white supremacy in these terms, you know, hate is an aspect of it, but it is born out of just this a system, right, of policies, um, codes. Um, implicit and explicit um, and all kinds of, you know, mechanisms in society that are overtly and subjectively used to, um, um, you know, subjugate Black people um, in the United States. And so um, hate is one aspect of it. That's an expression of it because all of the policies and practices and treatment tells you that that is okay. So it manifests itself um, sometimes outwardly, you know, as hate, I always tell people that, um, you know, you know, white supremacy isn't just about, um, you know, uh, the KKK donning robes or burning crosses, but it can be that. Um, it's not just um, individual acts of racism by just this lone wolf person that's racist. Um, and it can be that too, but it really is more of a systemic thing that then is embodied by group, by people, by humans, by European people that then are acted out um, in the form of hate or in the form of, um, you know, uh, discriminatory practices and policies that, you know, have redlining or where you can live, where you can go to school, you know, where you have access to things, um, money or, or that, or just day-to-day -day treatment, um, levels of respect. I mean, there's all kinds of ways, every aspect socially that you can think about, as well as institutionally and politically. So they go hand in hand, but just the outward, you know, act of hate um, that's one aspect of it that really is born out of a systemic um, aspect of it. And then it's also about um, the belief that you think um, uh, people of European ancestry are better than people of African ancestry, that they are more superior, that European people um, have um, access to certain rights and they have certain privileges and that their society, their way of thinking, their laws and policies and practices and ways of being are better than people of African descent. And that is told in society in a variety of ways as my young 
own child experience, I noticed without anybody directly saying this, that, you know, the, by the way that people are treated, that obviously if you're treating black people worse and white people better, then clearly you have an idea of about your own whiteness, about your own superiority that's implicit and explicit through the various policies and practices um, and that are happening in societies and politics and social customs and, and all the various ways in which we come to understand the world that we live in. So clearly there's this distinction that's both explicit and implied, you know, subjective and objective in a variety of policies and practices that people begin to then see and look at. I was able to see and notice it. And then people become um, um, of European ancestry to be able to internalize and in doing so, as they internalize that, they then begin to act on that in a variety of ways. And some people may act on that, you know, more explicitly and directly than others coming out as hate and, you know, KKK. Others may act upon it and just, you know, you know, how it is that they interact with people, discriminatory practices, things on their job, you know, where they live, where they choose not to live, who they choose to have as their friends. There's all kinds of ways in which that expresses itself, but it is a culture, it is a system within a society that people choose to act on or participate in. And, and sometimes it's unconscious because people don't quite see it. You know, I always say a fish doesn't know it's in water. So you don't necessarily see it. And so when I look back through my studies at the origins of it, I can see how when you structure and organize society around white supremacy, privileging white people, then your sites, the social structure, the water in which society is, is, is founded in, that then is um, formed with white supremacy. So then as time goes on and it continues to reify itself uh, century after century, generation after generation, People don't quite see the origins of it or that it's even a thing because that's the only way the society has ever interacted. So it's not going to stand out as being a thing or being abnormal or being, you know, kind of directly or explicitly anti-Black, even though it is, or even pro-white, even though it is, because the air you breathe, the water you swim in, everything that's around you. Um, is about white supremacy. So it doesn't stand out as being unusual because that's the only way that it's ever been. Yeah, no, that, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I want to ask you um, about um, those kind of implicit hierarchies that I think, uh, uh, you know, a lot of us are replicating, um, as you say, more or less consciously day to day. And I mean, I, I often... Um, use the example of uh, our attitudes um, here in Europe. We have this uh, recurrent debate around, um, you know, the treatment of refugees who are arriving on boats. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, in Europe in the last couple of years, there's been a, a shift in policy uh, around the European um uh, border control uh, and we've had basically what they call a let them drown policy which is that the boats yes do not intervene to assist um wow. uh, yes and so um to me uh, because I, I when whenever we talk about this idea that white supremacy continues to replicate um a sense of white lives being more valuable I think a lot of people racialized as white um kind of in instinctively bulk at that right my, even myself right. I would be like oh god no 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 of course not we we you know I, I believe in equal rights for everyone and I think everyone should benefit and, and and I'm sure most of us really believe that but actually when we look at the way that our societies operate at different levels we can see that clearly if a you know a white european child was was drowning fell off a right. boat that that you know that that would be immediately considered a uh, some someone who should be saved and and yet you know maybe a child fleeing war with their parents they that child now um, uh, you know, by virtue of their origin and their kind of exclusion of the, the boundaries of the safety net of whiteness, of European whiteness, is now uh, left to, to, to drown. And um, I wanted to ask you about the ways in which you see that 
um, manifesting in in other areas that that people may not um, realize, you know, because I, I do think a lot of people will hear the statement, oh, you know, white supremacy kind of still dominates in in our in our instincts, in our day to day reactions to things, and um, I I'm certain that it does. And I would love to hear what other areas that you think we should all be paying more attention to that highlight the way in which white supremacy continues to manifest in just even day-to-day responses we might have to things. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, you know, don't like to think of, they think of white supremacy and they somehow feels like that because they're white and all of a sudden, you know, it's some reflection on them. And one of the ways I like to get people to think of it is to, to detach the personal from it and look at it as an organizational system in society, how the society is organized and set up. Because all governments have a system to which a society is organized and it's organized to benefit certain people. We live in capitalist society. So by definition, capitalism is discriminatory, right? It's about certain people having more than others. You know, that's just going to be innate in the system. It's just part of the system. And when you have a system like that, for example, then certain people are going to have more advantages than others. And that's not, you know, just by organically that way. It's designed that way so that certain groups will have more access to money and more access to privileges and advantages. And that then continues to replicate itself in various ways and you know who gets tax benefits, who gets tax breaks, who can have access to capital, you know, who can have access to a variety of services, who can run for political office, who has access to um, the franchise and the right to vote, you know, who can live in certain places, um, you know, who has access to wealth. All of those things are set up that way. And because I'm an early Americanist, I look at the founding of the society and you can see how it's set up to be a certain way. So if you look at the systematic approach to things from the very beginning, the organizational structure of it, then you can see the inequalities within it. And you can take any area or sector of society, but if you just go back, say, for example, in the United States, you know, and you look at housing, for example, um, there was this way that Black people couldn't live in certain neighborhoods. Now, it's like, say, and that's just like post-slavery, right? I mean, if, say, if you just go into the 1950s or 60s, let's just take that, because most people can think of the Civil Rights Movement and Martin Luther King. Why were they you know, spraying hoses on black people. Why was it that black people couldn't marry? I mean, these are things, you know, marry other white people, you know, that was against the law, you know, in that loving case that happened, I think it was in the 70s, before it, federally, that it was legal for black people to marry white people, that that was against the law. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, why would you even have that? Okay, so that's just, so like, if you're not thinking, oh, it's not discriminatory, okay, well, then, you take a look at, you know, black people marrying white people, you know, and that's that, that being kind of outlawed in the 70s or the Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 took a Supreme Court's decision to say that black people could live in the could uh, sit in the same classrooms and go to school with white people. OK, there was a long history even before you got to that. But then why what was happening in society such that black people couldn't be in the same space? as white people and and in the same school and it took a Supreme Court decision and then it took 20 years um, of litigation um, after that. I was bust myself in the 1970s, that little girl that I was talking about, that little Carmen that I was talking about in the second and third grade, I'm bust. Why do I need to be bust? Why can't my school have the same thing that the white schools had? You know, I, I talked to one of my great aunts who, you know, there was the white school and the black school, and she's like 90 years old, and the white, we used to get the hand-me-down books from the white school, and their school was like, you know, some pristine college campus, even in high school, and theirs was like some rundown shack. And so it's just like, if you just look at how it is that laws and policies and practices within your society have taken shape over time, even in people's lifetime, and then if they go back and they were like, well, how did it get that way? What were these policies and practices? And then if someone says, well, it's not like that anymore, but it's like, yeah, but you had that whole history. So let's just say for the sake of argument that discrimination stopped, you know, in practice and in policy, say in 1980. Okay, but did that system and structure that caused 
that discriminatory practice to be in fruition from founding all the way to 1980. Did those systems and structures change in 1980 or they just simply said, okay, you can live here now. Okay, you can vote here now. And you had no overturn of the policies and practices that allowed that long history of discrimination to be in place prior to 1980. So if everything that led up to 1980 stayed intact, other than the fact that now I can go to this school, now that I can live in this neighborhood, and you've made no systemic or cultural policy changes that allowed it to happen in the first place, then clearly this is just going to continue to produce itself in the same way that like when Barack Obama was elected president of the United States, you had this long history of discriminatory practices where black people couldn't vote, they were held out of offices, they weren't allowed to have the franchise at all. So just because he got elected in, in, in 2008, that doesn't mean that that whole system of in the United States of electing presidents that happened all the way from George Washington to Obama that all of a sudden that history was wiped away just because you have a black man in there now. That system is still intact. You just have a black face in this totally white system. Nothing has changed. No laws and practices have changed. It just said, okay, now a black person can run, but that long infrastructure up until then is still in place. And you can see that in a variety of areas with the electoral college and all of these things that date back to the trend, to the slavery within the United States. That system, that structure is intact. And the only difference is, is now you as a black person have the right to enter into this space. Well, the, the, the whole structure is exactly the same that it was. The only difference is, is that now your face can be here. Well, if that's the case, then that means that the way in which the institution replicates itself in the ways in which it, um, um, uh, makes policy, looks at the world, um, and sees the world is from that same institutional framework that allowed the discrimination to happen in the first place. And so I want people to kind of move away from the personal and look at the systemic and structural. So if you look at what was the housing practices, you know, in your city, or, or what was the political practices, who had access to politics, who had access to living in certain spaces, who had access to loans. And then if you look at that whole structure that had to set that up, and then you say, well, now we don't do that. Does that mean then that all those practices that set it up in the first place to be discriminatory, does that mean that they all went away just because we say we no longer do that? No, that structure is in place. And it just has a black face that can now have access to something that they couldn't have access to before. That doesn't mean that structurally and systemically that that system has changed. And that's what I want people to look at. And I think when people look at it from a systemic standpoint, then it can take the personal out of it and say, I'm not necessarily doing this, even though you could be still buying into it but that you can see it at least from a systemic standpoint and systematic standpoint, how it's institutionalized in the policies and practices of, of whatever sector or industry that you may be looking at at a particular moment in time. Um, well, thank you. That was that was um, taking us uh, to, of course, this this uh, wonderful book that you've written that help, can help elucidate the history, right, of the system that we that you were just talking about. Um, and I and I definitely want to get onto that. I, I wanted to ask you just before if you feel that part of the um, part of the problem seems to be that the civil rights movement was maybe perceived by a lot of white people as one moment as opposed to a series of ongoing struggles which are not over and because of that there is a perception maybe uh, and and you will know far more about this than me but just as an outsider looking at the us i sometimes think it almost feels as if, Amer you know, white America has written the history books in a way that says we had the civil rights struggle, uh, you know, uh, you know, African-Americans got equal rights and now we're done. And and then I, you know, uh, will read African-American scholars who, you know, will point out a lot of the things that you're pointing out, of course, as well and saying, well, you know, that was just 
uh, one of the early stages of unpicking the system of white supremacy. So, so where does the sort of perception of the civil rights struggle and of what I'm trying to think what I, I think what I'm what I'm curious about is is the way that we have depicted in American history the civil rights struggle part of the problem of not recognizing that this isn't just that the, the work isn't done um yeah because you know we just I think it was one scholar Peniel Joseph said that you know U.S. history you know is told kind of like a lullaby like a bedtime story it's a beginning a middle and a triumphal ending you know you want to just have this story where it's just kind of all neat and tidy and first of all I would say it's the epitome of whiteness and white supremacy to really say when discrimination is over and and what it's about and when it ended and you're defining even for the people who are being discriminated against what it is that discrimination is, how their own lived experiences really were by how it is that you talk about it in the history books or with this anti-woke culture, refusing to allow people to talk about their experiences. That's white supremacy at its, at its height, right? That you're actually dictating the terms of someone else's own discriminatory experiences by how it is you're telling them, don't worry about this anymore, it's all over. Well, you let other people tell the story, right? And why is it that they had to struggle for that in the first place? They had to struggle because there were laws and policies and practices that allowed, that disallowed black people to have access to so many sectors of society. And just because then now all of a sudden black people can vote, for example, which was always in the constitution in the United States. And then now that they can vote, then the problem is all of a sudden solved. It's not, it's still part of the, the system and the structure of society. So we have not achieved kind of this multiracial democratic society that is equal because the institutional practices that allowed it to happen in the first place is still there. And as I said, just bringing a black face into a white space that had excluded them for centuries does not make discrimination go away, does not make white supremacy go away. Until we look at our policies and practices, who has access to spaces, including the polit politics, including the right to vote, how it is that we um, accept people or not, and the rules um, of, 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 of policies and ways that they have it um, laid out in society about um, um, access and about um, benefits and about rewards in society, until we can really look at each individual uh, sector of society and do kind of a racial audit of how it is that these systems continue to replicate themselves, whether you're looking at the healthcare industry, whether you have disparate in, um, outcomes, regardless of, of, of class, regardless of insurance, where you still see that black people in the United States um, have you know, higher rates of, of illness and disease, even when they have the same insurance, even when they have the same income, even when they have the same wealth. In fact, Poor white people, many poor white people's health outcomes are better than wealthier African-Americans. So we have to look at it structurally. And there's not this sense that, OK, this is over now that black people can vote and live anywhere that they want, because we have to change the systems and the structures in society that allow that to happen in the first place. And then it also just takes this reckoning with our past that we refuse to do. So we wanna say, well, the past is just a past, now you can vote, let's move on. Well, if you have that kind of outlook, then you're refusing to acknowledge all that long history. And until you do that and recognize that and try to spot you know, uh, uh, discriminatory practice, whiteness, white supremacist type practices within your society, until you're willing to do that and look at it and dissect it, and have a clear-eyed view of exactly what it is, um, then you're never going to be able to get past it. You know, it's just like you know telling to somebody you know who was sexually assaulted. Well, that happened a long time ago, and so we don't do that anymore. And that happened to you, and now it's over. Let's just move on, right? Well, no, you need to 
the person who assaulted someone else, they have to make an atonement. They have to recognize, they have to look with inside themselves to see what it is about them as an individual that allowed them to take out their hate and their anger and, and their assault onto another being. And they have to have a conversation with that other person so that they can understand their own position and then the harm that they've done. And then after that understanding has happened, then we can move on. But just to tell the person who was assaulted or who were discriminated against, oh, we don't do that anymore, get over it and move on. That's the epitome of whiteness. That's saying that whiteness is still intact because the person who did the transgression is the one who's not want to reckon with their own culpability in the transgression. They just want you to move on so that things can keep on going as it was and now that you can be next to me, you should be happy. That's not that's not um, how it is that you resolve or create, you know, a, a cohesive, functioning, multiracial, democratic society where all people um, um, ha- are equal and have equity within society. In your book, um, uh, you know, The Making of American Whiteness, The Formation of Race in the 17th Century Virginia, um, looks at the roots of that system, right? It looks at the uh, the earliest kind of emergence of the hierarchical construct of society that continues to inform the way that America and arguably other uh, uh, predominantly white societies operate. And I wanted to ask you about uh, my, my uh, you know, other readings that I've done tend to point to kind of Bacon's rebellion as sort of the earliest point at which the the word white begins to be used as a racial designation. Um, uh, Is that a view that you share or do you take a a different starting point for the emergence of this kind of concept of, of whiteness as a racial identity? Um, I'd say it started much early, and that's why I call it the making of American whiteness, because, you know, it's really about global white supremacy. And I just speak about the American version of that. But it happened long before Bacon's Rebellion. Bacon's Rebellion, they were rebelling because they were wanting to have all the Native American lands like the wealthy whites have. So, you know, a lot of this is about um, this intra-white conflict between poor whites and wealthier whites. That happened when Virginia, the first uh, colony, English colony that makes up what is the United States, you know, there was kind of this agreement and quid pro quo between the wealthier whites and the poor whites that really is like the problem, a big problem in white supremacy today. It's like the other side of the coin of the anti-blackness. It's just this intra-white dynamic. And, And so Bacon's rebellion was, you know, was about, hey, I came over here, the poor whites, I came over here, um, I did the work, I did a lot of the labor until African people, you know, um, you know, took over as far as the free labor. Um, I agreed to kind of give up my freedom as as European indentured servants. and, And I allowed you wealthier whites to have a large portion of the Native American land. I, had, I allowed you to set up all the policies and practices. I allowed you to say that me, poor European indentured servant male, couldn't vote until I owned property. I acquiesced to all of these things in the establishment of the new world, which would become the United States. I acquiesced to all this because you kind of told me both explicitly and implicitly that I would have you know, a larger standing than, I would have a higher standing in society than Native Americans, higher standing than African people, that I would have access to the land and wealth that the wealthier people had if I just would kind of agree to this system that you are setting up in the new world that is different than what it was in England, that if I just gave up you know, some of my rights and, and allowed the wealthier whites to create this system, then you, then I would then reap the benefits of that rewards. Bacon's rebellion was saying, hey, wait a minute, you didn't live up to your end of the bargain. And so they then rebelled. And that's when uh, the wealthy elites had to then acquiesce and allow uh, the poor whites without land to have the right to vote. Prior to that, they didn't. And they what poor whites agreed to that um, um, exchange um, as part of this system of cooperation um, between the classes of whites. And so 
I argue in my book that whiteness occurred long before that. Because first of all, when you as a group of people decide to, you know, cross the Atlantic and go to another place, right, um, in order to take and colonize somebody else's land that you already knew was there, um, that to me is an act of whiteness. So because I didn't say it out loud, call myself white, you thought that you were more superior than Native Americans just from the simple act of you coming to another land and start doling it out, assuming just because there wasn't a fence around it or a deed that somehow that Native American people um, were just not using not using the land properly by your standards, um, not making use of the land, not having a good government and organizing system because it didn't follow kind of this European kind of hierarchical top-down type system of governance. Um, that all the ways in which Native American people had was different um, from yours, and you assumed that your way was more superior because of those types of actions that you went about once you landed in the new world and even prior to coming, all the work and actions that set up the whole colonization process of the new world of, that became the United States, and then be participating in and observing and, and, and the work that uh, European people, English people had with other European nations that were active in the transatlantic slave trade that helped kind of set the foundation for the social order and, and racial order of, of, of Virginia at settlement in 1607, European settlement in 1607. The acts that took place prior and upon settling in Virginia in 1607 and their interactions with Native Americans during the colonizations before the African people arrived in Virginia in 1619, all of those actions, I argue in my book, The Making American Whiteness, speak to whiteness, seeing yourself as white. So many scholars, because they didn't utter the word white, that somehow people think that that means that they didn't think of themselves as white. I argue that the whiteness was in their actions and the ways in which they set up the society to privilege whites, even the poor whites, over Native Americans and African people. And can I ask you, because this often comes up when we talk about um, colonization, that people will say, well, you know, Europeans obviously were not the only uh, people to invade other people's lands and uh, occupy it and, and kind of create hierarchical systems within that. What do you regard as the distinctiveness of that? Was it in the attitudes you mentioned to uh, native populations? I know I was reading uh, a book recently where um, the uh, the author, I, I wish I could remember even the name of the book, but the book was arguing that um, if you looked, for example, at um, Islamic empires, that um, the, there was a kind of absorption of um, local elites so that they were not kind of superseded by external uh, populations, that actually there was a form of collaboration that probably created other hierarchies. But sorry, I'm, I'm digressing, but you, you get my point. Like, how do you mm -hmm. see that distinctiveness, I guess, in, in what we would call the whiteness operating within that form of colonization? Well, Again, I, I don't, I mean, we can talk about other systems and people's like, oh, there was slavery everywhere. Let's keep the focus on, in my sense, the United States, right? So the fact that they had slavery, you know, in another uh, uh, continent somewhere doesn't get us to understanding what is our problem. So if we keep the focus in my reading of the United States and how it is that they set up their system, they came in setting it up to privilege people of European ancestry, regardless of class, right? And, and so, and then you look at the policies and practices. So say for like for African people, you know, when they arrived, um, well, first of all, let's start with even with the Native Americans, they said about colonizing their lands, telling them not to marry Native American people, telling them not to trade with Native American people, taking their land and just indiscriminately distributing it and massacring the Native American people, calling them savages, calling their religious practices, you know, kind of heathenistic, 
when African people arrived. And of course, they were thinking this about these groups of people before setting shore in Virginia, for example, but just for the sake of the discussion, when African people arrived, always calling them Negro. Again, that to me is a distinction between, well, if they're Negro, I'm other than Negro. And then the Negro, here's how you're going to be treated. So if you're Negro from 1619, you couldn't be free um, if you came over on one of the European slave ships to Virginia and you got off that ship, then you're, the only way that you could be free is that if you self-purchased and freed yourself or that your owner manumitted you. From day one, that's the only way that you can be free. So there's this argument that there really wasn't slavery in, in the new world, you know, but yet you couldn't be free unless you man, were manumitted by your owner, unless you had self-purchase. That to me is slavery, but, you know, people, historians, you know, like to call that something else in the same way people like to say it wasn't white. So if you have this policy of who can be free from for African people, that you, um, if your your type of servitude can only be uh, evoke freedom unless um, you're manumitted or unless you have self-purchase, but then the European indentured servant who was in a form of bondage um, had a contract that stipulated how long they would be in servitude and what the conditions were and how they would be treated. And it was stipulated by law and policy, whereas everybody of African descent, their servitude is indefinite. And then you go on to make a more onerous and onerous policies that perpetually keep people who are of African descent in bondage, like saying that if your mother is a is enslaved, then you also as a, her child will be enslaved too. That um, that you know if you get baptized if you're of African descent and and then that doesn't make you free. You know, all the things that African people were trying to fight against and resist um, to be more free. Uh, European people in in Virginia came would come back with another reason why they couldn't be free. All of those types of systems and policies tell me and speak to the fact that white people kind of thought of African people um, as being so much less and so much lower than them, and in the same way they thought of Native American people, um, and and they cho chose. African people for slavery in the New World because they were already in being enslaved over on the continent of Africa and being utilized as labor over in the coloniz European colonization of parts of Africa. And then, of course, with the Portuguese in Brazil in the, in the 15th and 16th century. So you just see this kind of systematic way in which it became more and more and more and more entrenched when it came to African people. So colonization and enslavement go hand in hand when you take a look at the distinctions between um, the what came to be the United States and other countries that had hierarchical systems and that had systems of slavery. And um, scholars across the board say that slavery in the United States was much harsher and much worse. And then obviously we look at the history of the United States with blackness. Um, than any other place that had slavery um, around the world. And so, again, I get back to the fact that when people try to, in my mind, obfuscate the whole conversation by saying, well, everybody has that. We're not talking about everybody. In my case, I'm talking about the United States. Let's look at our problem. Let's look at that history and let's deal with that not concerned about what they were doing in Europe or whatever. That's their issue. And it overlaps in a lot of ways, but by trying to say, you know, well, they did that over there. It's just like, you know, a two-year-old, well, you did this, Johnny. Well, so-and-so did it too. Well, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about what you did, okay? So let's not move the goalpost. Let's focus and nail down this because what we're trying to do is establish a multiracial uh, democracy where you are. How can we get to that place? Okay, and getting to that place is focusing on the actions of the people and the history and the policies and practices of the place that you live in, and then how it is that we as citizens and societies can, what can we do in, as citizens to make it a better place given that history and given how it is that society is operating today, how it is that we can make that better. 
that should be the focus, not worrying about if we're in the United States, what happened in Europe, what happened in the Middle East or all these other places. That's fine and dandy. That's part of another conversation. But if we're going to get at the U.S.'s problem, then we need to focus on what we have done and what we are doing. And and I definitely want to come back to the ways in which people can do that at an individual level. Um, but I wanted to um, actually ask you, so am I hearing you right that um, I've often thought of the development of whiteness as concurrent with capitalist expansion, right? The idea that in order to justify invading other people's lands, taking their territories, basically to build your own business or to build the business for the state, you know, you kind of had to have an argument for why you should deserve that land and this other person in front of you should not. And so I always thought of whiteness as sort of concurrent with that um, sort of a sort of veneer of moral justification completely abject moral justification but um for for capitalist expansion but um am i hearing you that you think that it it sort of predates even that the whiteness kind of even predates that expansion that there was something even before that i do but i would you know posit that if you're looking at the transatlantic slave trade Okay, dating back to the 15th century, uh, I have other scholars like Eric Williams have argued that that is, you know, kind of early capitalism, right? Mm. So it depends on when you're dating capitalism. I'd say the transatlantic slave trade is a part of our early capitalist system through the buying and selling of black bodies and trading in black bodies, right? So I that's where I would just say it just depends on how you look at it. And again, getting into these terms and trying to say, well, it wasn't fully developed like X or that nobody uttered the word white or uttered the word slave until this date. And so therefore everything that happened before that wasn't that. Um, I think what my work is trying to do is to get us out of that kind of, oh, here's the pin, you know, where this happened, but look at the early actions that happened prior to that. And I would say that those actions are showing early capitalist formations. Um, I would argue that prior to the uttering the word white, that all the actions leading up to that is whiteness. And um, because I'm conscious of time, uh, what would you say is the most significant takeaway that you would want audiences reading your book, um, readers uh, engaging with your, your research to take away from your work in this area? Well, I would say that, you know, the American whiteness is about a global system of white supremacy that predates, you know, European expansion to the new world. I would say that the making of American whiteness is about this cooperation among European peoples um, prior to even the rival arrival of African people in the new world. I would say that the making of American whiteness is about um the actions of whites against blacks, right? And so it's, and then I want people to look at it as a systemic institutional policy framework as more than, or as much as, I just don't like you because you're black. Because you're just not gonna see this smoking gun in society, in any policies or, or textbooks or laws and constitutions that say, I hate black people. So if you're waiting for that to kind of say, aha, no, but if you look at what you did, the hate is already there, right? The white supremacy is there by your actions, not by necessarily what comes out of one's mouth. And so I would just say for the people who kind of recognize that, you know, this is a problem because there are a lot of anti-racist white groups out there. There are a lot of people that are white, for example, that recognize this. And I'm not saying that all white people are bad or anything like that. We all get along on a day-to-day basis, but when it comes down to the practical policy aspect of it, I want people to look at these systems that allowed certain things to happen in society that were against Black people and that privileged whites. I want them to kind of look at those things and and try to affect change by being mindful of the systemic aspect of it 
and not so much the personal, even though that's part of it. But if you're wanting to to do something about it is recognizing and refusing to cooperate with the systemic institutional practices that are in society and that are privileging whites and disadvantaging blacks and other groups of people and refuse to cooperate with that and refuse to buy into that. Mm, and so I'm hearing anti-racism less as a sort of, uh, you know, uh, verbalization of, uh, you know, a love of others, which, you know, sounds almost, uh, you know, a little, a little, we say in French, a de rose, you know, a little lovey, lovey-dovey, that actually right. what's needed is to recognize the ways in which we continue to participate in systems that privilege white people above others and to be active participants in um, ch challenging and um, unpicking and, and ideally yes. recreating new systems that are aligned with what we say we truly believe in ultimately, because I guess yes. that's- Yes, um, and making that happen. Because, you know, after George Floyd say here in the United States, everyone is like, oh, OK, Black Lives Matter and, and we on our boards, we're going to, you know, make sure that we have, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion. OK, and then I go look at your board and everybody on the board is black and you have nobody of color, not even black, but anybody else. Well, you know, you're just talking. Let me see what your actions are. Mm -hmm. And so it takes all of us to first recognize and then begin to, like you said, to act on it, to live out, to unpick those things that we see in our day-to-day -day lives, in our societies, in our communities to make this happen. Because the goal is to have this multiracial uh, society with equity and, and, and um, equality of everybody. And, we, and, and the fact that somebody else is getting equality, don't see that as taking away from you. And I know it's hard to do in capitalist societies because it's really about inequality. So we have to kind of even think larger than the system in which we operate to see is it, as people come together and as all groups, you know, kind of like the, you know, the tide, you know, raises up all rising tide raises all boats that is inequality within a society is hurting everybody. It's really about all people in society not only having equality, but being equal and being treated equal and having um, equal opportunity and equal access in society that is not based on race. And so you have to get to the point where you begin to see everybody in society, as we were talking about early with the refugee problem, as your child, as your brother and sister, regardless of their color, we all are in this same space together and you want for somebody who's different from you in race or religion or background and sexuality, you want the same for them as you would want from your for your own child and own family member. It's really about a heart change, but first you have to see, you know, the po political, the policy, the systemic aspect of it, and recognize that and accept that and try to undo that. And I think that's the beginning of the the process. Thank you, and that's a, a really really powerful note for us to um, end on. I did want to ask you. Uh, before we go to our quick fire session, uh, very briefly, if I may, about your experience of being uh, a, an academic at a time where African-American studies are being shut down, entire departments are being closed, that there are, uh, you know, certain campuses where even uh, mentioning BLM is forbidden uh, now uh, in the U.S. Uh, for those who are not familiar, there is a um, particularly uh, coming from Florida um, and, you know, what could be a future U.S. president, a uh, real pushback against African-American uh, study departments. Can you give those of us who are outside of the U.S., outside of this world, uh, a sense of, of what 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 does the climate feel like and, and what are your what are your hopes and fears for, for the future? Because it looks very dystopian from outside the US and I, I have no yeah. idea what it feels like from inside. It, it feels the same way, but it's familiar because really this is just another iteration of white supremacy that has always been part of the United States. I mean, there was a time where it was illegal for black people in the United States, you know, when they were enslaved to be taught to read and write. Right. So here we are, you know, in, in you know, in 2023, trying to take out any mention of black people and black history. Um, you know, that that's certainly, um, you know, 
common for this country. So this is just kind of the latest iteration of white supremacy and whiteness, trying to not talk about black people, uh, trying to not talk about black history, trying to take away their contributions and experiences um, out of history books. And again, it's the epitome of whiteness to try to tell somebody else, you know, what they could talk about and what they can say regarding black people. So um, although, um, you know, it is, has that dystopian feel, it really feels familiar uh, to Black people in the United States because we've seen that since we, you know, were uh, captured and, and, and placed on the shores of what is the United States now in 1619 and going forward. There's been all manner of policies and practices um, trying to strip uh, away the humanity of Black people and the experiences of Black people. But it really is about keeping this information out of the hands of whites. Because if white children know about the history and experiences of black people in the United States, I believe that you know these white supremacist politicians will then see that these children will then start making connections between their own experiences as citizens in the United States and black people, and then move towards kind of coalescing and collaborating with black people around these systems of capitalism, of inequality and classism, and, and that's happening within the American society. And then you will have kind of a coming together of people of working class, everyday kind of working middle class people and working class and lower together um, around their common and shared experiences with the elite and with the wealth. And so creating kind of this boogeyman of wokeness, creating this boogeyman out of the black experience, I think is as much directed for everyday working class white people and their children to keep them from seeing their commonality with black people than it is kind of as it is, as much as it is anti-black. Because then if you get the populace, the masses of people to see their commonality with one another, then you can really have change and, and more equality. And by doing so, that will then mean less power and, and, and opportunity for the elite who are running the United States and running the world. And, though, and that's their fear, in my opinion. And so the way in which this is expressed, because the Black Lives Matter and all the change that happened since the murder of George Floyd, that was creating a more multiracial um, uh, um, society where people across generation, across class and racial lines were coming together. And how do you get back at that? Then you create this boogeyman of wokeness. You create this boogeyman of talking about Black people and Black education. And they're doing that to kind of continue to create this divide against the races so that they don't come together and say, wait a minute, we really have more in common with each other than we do have with these wealthy white men that are running the, the nation and the world. And, and, and if, if we all come together and then get to looking over there at them and saying, hey, wait a minute, I want you out. I want a different change. I want a different society. I want to reimagine the society that I want differently than all the wealth, going, the riches and the rewards going to the select group of people, that that is really the threat. And so I think that's why we have to be mindful of that and not get played uh, once again um, by uh, these wealthy people that are trying to pit people together um, uh, across racial lines and using blackness kind of as the boogeyman in which to accomplish that. And then this whole woke culture and, you know, teaching black history, that's just kind of um, a camouflage to their fear that people are coming together across racial lines and identifying with one another across racial lines. And by doing so, then we'll then begin to want to change society, which would mean less power for them. Dr. Thompson, thank you so much for those insights. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Um, we have a tradition of the quick fire round at the end of the episodes where I ask quick fire questions and I'm hoping for quick fire responses if you are able to. Um, what is your definition of whiteness? I would say an expectation of privilege and advantage by the government of policies that benefit white people. What is the root of racism? I would say uh, thinking 
um, that your race is superior to another, thinking and believing that. What is racial justice? Where the color of your skin does not have any impact on your uh, quality of life, your access to resources, any of the measurable life outcomes that there won't be, you know, this wealth gap or, you know, a health gap or all these other things that it would be almost even across the board, regardless of race. What is the opposite of whiteness? The opposite of whiteness. I would say um, a multiracial democracy. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that ideal even desirable? I don't think it's, I don't think there's a, a view that that is even possible in a society that is organized around race. Uh, Dr. Uh, Thompson, I want to thank you once again for being a part of this podcast, for your work, for your fantastic book, for being here with us. Um, where can people who want to learn more about your work um, find out more about you and what you do? Um, the place that you can find out about my, well, first, you can find out my book um, at um, the uh, Roman and Littlefield, my publisher. That's the place where you can find out information about me and about my work. My book is available on Amazon. So I'm, I'm, the book is published by Lexington Books, which is a uh, imprint series of Roman Littlefield. And so either through Lexington Books or Roman and Littlefield, you can find information about me and the book. And then, um, and of course, the book is available also on Amazon. And that just a reminder from that, the making of American whiteness, the formation of race in 17th century Virginia. Um, Dr. Carmen Thompson, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Thank you so much. Thank you.